Okay, everybody. What? Uh, let's talk about this just for a second. What did you? Um, what did you determine from from this? Um, how, somebody talk about a definition of friendship. How do you how do you define friendship? Definition of friendship. A kind of life with somebody in which there's unconditional love. Okay. All right. What else, Richard? A contact on social media. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I asked, so you answered. Um, okay. Any anything else? Un unconditional love. Someone that's willing to challenge. Somebody's willing to challenge you. Okay. Good. Good. Um, this is good. Everything's good except for the social media uh, wow. deal. And uh, so, yeah. Well, uh, what's what was left of it anyway? Um, the uh, so what? What else? Any other ideas on definition of friendship? Friendship. Wait, wait, wait. What now? We, as a culture, we've thrown away the word acquaintance. We've thrown away the word acquaintance. We don't use it, so now it's like my friend from work, my friend from church. Oh, okay. My from so, so we've defined it down. We've defined, we've opened up what qualifies as friendship. Right, but then we kind of create new terms and like one that resonates with me is my people. These are my people. Yeah. And when I'm talking about my people. People that I can be completely honest with, and I'm regularly completely honest with. And Interesting. See me at my ugliest, and kind of what Hope was saying, love me anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good, good. These, you're thinking. These are good. You know, Richard. Uh, Richard doesn't use the word friend, but he just introduces himself as. Your boy Richard, uh, but um, so uh, so anyway, um, so we've got we've got all of these. You're thinking about friendship. That's good. So is marriage then? Is let's let's go to the second question. Is marriage the highest form of friendship? Um, what what say you about that? Anybody? Dad gummit lane. Um, uh, say more. Not about my sermon, but say more. Oh, whatever. Okay. Um, uh, sometimes people, friends, get on thin ice, uh, like now, and so uh, they they. They, you're almost falling through that ice lane. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, is marriage the highest form of friendship? I, I'm really, I really want to know what you think about that. I sure hope not, because if it is, Jesus didn't experience it. 
Well, how can we argue with that? If when you play the Jesus card, come on. Yeah, all right. Okay. The right answer must be Jesus. Okay. Um, okay, does anybody want to take issue with that? I mean... Well, I kind of better took a little discussion because I was thinking our relationship with Christ should be the highest form of friendship. But, like, I would say that's kind of one-sided. Like, we can't be a friend to Christ the way he is, he is to us. This is good. This is good. Any any other thoughts to throw I, into? I say no because I, I think in a really great marriage, your best friends and you know, along with lovers and everything else. But unfortunately, you look at a lot of marriages today; they don't have best friendships. They don't yeah. have friends. And you know, I, I look at more like you look at like guys and. And then one of the things there too is just part of the attraction in a marriage is, is a physical attraction. And that's not the highest level of love. I think the highest kind of love is, is you know, whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't make any difference. You care about the person. Mm. And, and one example is like in the military, you know, people will die for, for mm. the guy you're, 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 you're serving with. And to me, that's a higher level of, of love than, I think, than marriage. It's interesting you raised the, the military uh, consideration there. I had somebody tell me... Ah. What? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> I had somebody tell me uh, not too long ago that uh, he's a retired colonel. He said... I have a bond with the men I served with um, in combat um, that is of a of a completely other kind of quality and is deeper and more unexplainable than than the bond I have with my wife or with my children or with anybody else. Um, he said, we have kept each other warm sleeping at night um, when we didn't have anything else. I mean, so there's physical closeness, there's emotional vulnerability, and, and we would tend to go, oh, uh, that's a little... Not him, though. And... Uh, he, he just put it right out there. So I just, I raised that just because I, that struck me as interesting. And then you, you, uh, you talked about this, uh, Jim, just now. So I don't know. We'll, we'll continue to, to uh, anybody else have any ideas or thoughts there? Also thought about David and Jonathan. Yeah, we're going to raise that in just a second. That's exact. But why not now? Uh, wait a minute. Hang on. Once it, all hands are going up all the same. Do you want to say more about that, Jasper? Uh, no, that's that's just an example that pops in my head. 
Yeah. Yeah, wow. You know, First Samuel uh, talks, you know, he says, your love, Jonathan, for me, was better than the love of women. That's what he says. Um, Lane? Well, I was just thinking, I wonder if that's the right question. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. So I think it depends a lot on people involved and what their concept is of that relationship. And, what, and, and I'm, I'm, I haven't thought this through yet, this is off the top of my head, but I'm just thinking, you know, the depth of either of those depends a lot on how well those people know, each, know themselves and have sort of mm. their own issues. Okay. And I'm thinking of like people that, you know, like, Yes. Uh huh. Have a depth, and they uh, there's something about the way they talk about things that is very different from the way most people live their lives. And I think that has a lot to do with the capacity for what kind of friendships and marriage. You raise, and I'll get large just a second. You you raise very interesting points there, especially when you talk about knowing yourself. And we're going to return to that in just a moment. Laura? Well, just maybe a different way to answer, ask the question is, can the highest form of friendship only be achieved through marriage? Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good rephrasing. Um, Richard, you want to rethink anything about social media at all? No, I'm kidding. What? what well, uh, <laughs> you're going to, good, good. Scripture says marriage is, is not eternal. Not eternal. Yeah, what that's right. Scripture say about, does Scripture say anything about friendship? Yeah. After. Yeah, it, it it do it okay. do say that, Good. and and not not direct not friendship is eternal. You know, it doesn't say that. But what we can um, understand from the way that the scriptures talk about friendship is very, very important. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, okay, let me ask a question for which I have no premeditated answer yet. Uh, but I want you to help me think this through. And we, don't, we won't have to get to the answer tonight. And in fact, I don't want to because we've got to move on. But um, I'm... I don't know where to go with this, uh, and this is just a question I have. Does the Bible's use of marital imagery, okay, got that? Does the Bible's use of marital imagery for Christ and the church privilege marriage in some way with God's seal of approval as a higher form of human, human love than other kinds of life together? Do you know what I'm asking? Richard, do you have an well, answer for that? So in that relationship, it's very corporate. But then at a very personal level, God calls us friends. Seems Ooh. Like, 
Uh, ah, ah, okay. A corporate relationship between the body of Christ and, okay. and Jesus, but then there's this personal relationship where it's a friendship. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yes, Ivan. Wasn't the institution of marriage fundamentally different back in that day than we describe today? Well, it. I will say this. You, you raise an interesting point there. What are the cultural forms of marriage versus what are the? Um, Trans, transcendent uh, forms that stay the same across <coughs> across time. So if, if I was using the metaphor of marriage, what is the metaphor being aligned to? Okay. I think that is very pertinent. Very pertinent. And I want to hold both that thought and your thought, Richard, in in my mind here because I don't want to go any further with this because we've got some other ground to cover. But if I forget either of these thoughts, will you remind me what you said? Will you will you please like later I may ask you. So Ivan, don't forget, Richard, don't forget. Please. I'm just a I'm asking you. Please don't forget this. Because I you're on you we're about to those two thoughts can help me synthesize something here. All right. Um, I, I want to delve into something here. Uh, we're going to talk just a little bit about marriage just a little more before we go full bore into friendship. And that is um, marriage rates are declining. Okay, I mean, that's just a well-known fact in in the west marriage rates are declining not all over the world but in the west marriage rates are declining especially in the united states um, does that mean that churches would do well to encourage people to marry uh, does that mean that your desire to marry a spouse is good and right and not to be questioned. In other words, marriage rates are declining, but in the church, should things, should we address that, address that by encouraging people to get married and B, not questioning anybody's desire to get married? Um, the scripture the scriptures, I, I, I was thinking today that, that there was a scripture that says, he who marries a wife does a good thing, but that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures actually say, he who finds a wife finds what is good. That's Proverbs 18. It doesn't say anything about should or, you know, uh, that, that what's preferable there. It just says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So that doesn't answer the question. Um, most people in our day and in my own experience would like to get married someday. Not all, and certainly not all in this room, but uh, 
you know, if we polled, not everybody would say, you know, 100%, yes. But most people um, want to get married. Is that good? Is that good? I mean, I've always said, yeah, that's good, but I'm really asking, is it good to want to get married, especially if you keep continuing to be frustrated in that desire? Um, should churches encourage, again, I'll ask this, should churches encourage people to marry? Um, well, we're going to leave those questions hanging there because I, I hope that that will kind of set the stage for the rest of this here. In 1 Corinthians 7, which we have looked at in depth in the recent past, and I would encourage you always to read it again, Paul says, don't get married. I mean, he just flat out says, don't get married um, on the notion that marriage would really be great. Or, don't get married merely on the grounds that you really want to get married. Um, he, he offers a great amount of caution there. He says, your default place is as, a, as an unmarried person. He says, any person's default, I mean, you only have to think about that for two seconds to know that's true. You don't come out of the womb with a spouse. Um, so your default position is unmarried. He says the rationale for changing that, the threshold, is, is very high. Higher than we often think. Um, and he offers a whole slew of, not warnings, but of realities. He just says, look, if you get married, your marriage is going to tell you what to do with your life. We think we can tell our marriage what to do. But we can't. It's going to divide your life. And people who try to divide it into what they want to do and what they don't want to do run into a buzzsaw very, very quickly. He said, your marriage is going to tell you what to do. And the way he says it is it's going to divide your mind in ways that you never thought it could be divided. He's not complaining about that. He's not presenting marriage as something ugly. He's just saying, this is how it works. And you've got to weigh that. You have got to say, uh, it's up to you to say, is, am, am I up to that task? Paul presents it as a vocation. Uh, as we read about marriage in the scriptures, it, what, what we come away with, if we uh, quit trying to rely on what our society tells us about marriage, romance and sexy fun adventure and all that kind of stuff, um, we come away with vocation, which is a, a project entered into with soberness. And, um, and, w and with uh, deliberative intention to see it through. It's a high calling. Um, it's a high task. Um, 
And what I mean by calling is, you know, not necessarily that God will call some and call others. I think he, he does nudge us in certain ways or prompt us, but I think it's more like you can do this if you wish, but understand what it requires. I don't think God says, I, I mean, and you may disagree, but I, I don't believe that God says, hey, Brian, get married. Do it now. I, I don't believe He says that. Um, did He tell me to marry? I am married, uh, as many of you know. Did He tell me to marry the woman who is my wife? Did He tell me to do that? He didn't, as far as I know. He presented me with an opportunity to do that. Um, and so I, I did so. I don't regret doing so. But I don't think the Lord said, let me tell you how it's going to be, pal. This is the way it's going to go. This is what's going to happen. This is the way it's going to go down. You are marrying that person. I, I, that's not how I experienced it. And I think Paul, I think this is, I think that this is the posture and the mindset from which Paul approaches this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, understand that you can get married, but you don't need to. And I, and he in fact says, I'm trying to spare you some trouble here. Okay? And we've talked about this uh, some in the past. But, but he presents it from a, he sort of, he sort of strips away all this kind of fluffy stuff that we often associate with marriage. You know, I found the one, you know, I have, um, you know, been sort of pulled into, you know, this vortex of awesome romantic perfection, you know, whatever. Um, Paul says, look, you have the opportunity to do so, but you're not compelled to do so, and I'm trying to help you think soberly about it. Um, now, let's, let's continue here. What people often look for in marriage is friendship. Now, you may not, you may push back on that. Well, I, I want romance. Um, I want love. I want, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, I would maintain that in our society today, what people often look for, not always, but often, is friendship. Why do I say that? What is, what does, the, and I was talking with a friend about this earlier today, uh, what, what does the word bromance mean? <laughs> Seriously, what, what, let's, let's, let's talk about bromance here for just for a second. What, yes, Michelle? Two really good guy friends. What are the qualities of a bromance, though, as we 
you know, might. Okay, it's it's generally there is a there is a straight guy kind of uh, um, overtone to that. Okay, but but let me let me ask you this: we, we you know people joke about bromance and blah blah blah. Is there anything to that though? Might there be something to that? Might there be? I mean, what is romance? How do we describe romance? Sirens going off? No. Uh, how do we describe... Good heavens. Uh, yeah, it's really... Well, okay. We get it. Uh, all right. Okay. Yeah, really. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, church. The thought police have come for me. I said nothing and they finally came for me. Uh, okay. Uh, romance. W what is romance? Every song you hear on the radio. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. What? Some descriptors of romance. Cinderella story. Cinderella story. Swept off feet. Feet being swept uh, away. Um, what else? It's magic. It's starry-eyed. Listen. Have you ever experienced a, a bromance or a cis-mance? There's another word. There's another word for that. Cis-womanance. Uh, huh? Okay, yeah, you're right. But but there is a... Uh, have you ever experienced that? I have experienced what I would consider a, a bromance a couple of times in my life. And I can tell you that there is a sense of... There is a sense of being swept off your feet. With men, too. It, regardless of sexual orientation, there is that sense. So it's not confined necessarily to the opposite sex. But friend, and, and I would say that sometimes bromance, so called, is more akin to historical friendship as it's been understood through the thousands of years of human history, then we understand friendship now. Let's talk about David and Jonathan. Let's talk about how they expressed their love for each other unabashedly. Now, some contemporary observers have added a, not just an erotic overtone, uh, and we're going to talk about eros in a minute, but but a sexual, uh, a, a sexualized overtone. Uh, I don't think the reading of the scripture warrants that, but some serious Bible scholars have said yes, there was uh, there was a there was a there was a sexualized um, dimension activity of their uh, in their friendship. Again, I don't think the biblical material warrants that reading. Um, I think what we are missing, I think the reason some people see that there is because we are missing some of what, or much of what friendship actually has 
historically been understood to be. We don't get that now. Um, you, had, you have affection. I mean, look at David and Jonathan. You have the display of affection. Kissing. They kiss one another. They, they uh, wear each other's clothes. Uh, they uh, bear their souls to each other. Um, so there, there is this, there is this deep um, regard that goes beyond uh, any any kind of superficial uh, um, arm's length kind of role with each of them. And then, you, of course, you hear after Jonathan has died, you hear the, the David, the grief-stricken David, you read him saying, your love for me was better than the love of women. Well, that's just the sort of the, the damning, you know, note of aha, you know, there, there is, and, and regardless of where you come down on same-sex sexuality, same-sex sexual expression, Regardless, I'm not. I'm not saying, uh, oh, whatever you do, don't think that about David and Jonathan, because we all know that's disgusting. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, I think we impoverish friendship by forcing a sexual expression onto it that is not warranted, but is rather uh, the result of our own hypersexualized understanding of life together with others. Um, I think we, we drain much of the power of the dear affection from David and Jonathan when we insist on reading that in light of contemporary mores. Now, um, let's, let's move to the New Testament and let's move to Jesus himself what was the nickname of one of his disciples? The disciple he loved. The disciple whom he loved. It's, it sort of reminds me of he who must not be named. You know, that's a sort of a long. Uh, but but who was the disciple whom Jesus loved? Who is he identified with? You must not speak his name. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, John. Do you recall? a small dinner party that these folks had um, one night? You know what I'm talking about? The last one. The last dinner party. Let's call, let's call it that and see if anybody notices. Um, the last dinner party. What was the arrangement around the table? Who was seated next to Jesus? What was that posture like? They were back to back. Weren't they? No, it was Jesus was like in the group of John's arm or something like that. They didn't sit in those days. They, they reclined. They did recline, but John was reclining on Jesus' breast, on his chest. 
You ever see any couple of guys sitting like that in church ever? You ever walk in and go, oh, they're close. Um, Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah. But what what would we do if we saw that today? Seriously. Yeah. We, we would we would place a sexual context around that. Yeah. Well, like Jessica did. Uh, we we would we would do a Jessica there. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. Uh, it's 2019. Men shouldn't cuddle. Listen, but that raises you just you just raised since you raised the point. 2019. So what we're saying is, culture trumps friendship expressions. Right? Are we saying that? Are we prepared to go there? Yes. Well, right. It seems strange to people reading it today because they're both men. Like if they were two women, would we say, wow, they were lesbians? Right. And and we know this to be the truth, right? We we see women put their arms around each other or hold hands probably less and less as as the sensitivity grows. But it's nothing. It has been in recent history, nothing for that to happen. We, until recently, until very recently, women would refer to their friend, their female friends as what? Girlfriends. Girlfriends. And now you go, oh, I get it. Yeah, it gives you kind of a pause. You go, does she mean she's a lesbian? No, she means. Um, but do have men historically said, do I say, yeah, it was one of my boyfriend, my boyfriends. You know, if I had said, oh, let me tell you this story, one of my boyfriends. Uh, he, he said, I mean, uh, honestly, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be flip necessarily. I'm just saying that this, there is, and it is a cultural kind of acceptance there. It just seems kind of interesting, the dichotomy between the sexes. Like, right. I mean, it seems like such a big deal, but like, to me, I'm like, cool? Yeah, well, and, and you're, you, you point out something that we all know is true. Right. Um, I mean, and we don't often articulate it, and so thank you. But uh, we are, did somebody have a question over here? Oh, or a comment, yes. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, I don't know if y'all have read stuff like this, but there's been articles recently about this whole issue. I know. How Cuddling and so. Back, back in, you know, the 1800s and, you know, earlier, men were, it was totally different. It wasn't assumed that men had a sexual relationship, and they were using examples of, like, the letters of, like, Abraham Lincoln. That's right. And the letters that men write to each other. That's right. And they're very affectionate, and you know, they were just because of the way things were in that day when they traveled. You know, you could share a hotel with someone. You yes. Know. That's right. Sleep in the same bed. Yeah. Exactly. And so. And it wasn't a king size. Yeah. What's interesting is as society has become more accepting of homosexuality, isn't it interesting? More unacceptable for men to and, be friends with women. Uh, 
drop it, just drop it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let it down slowly. Um, okay, listen. This, this is. No, this is what. This is exactly what happens, Lane. We, we are. This is how sexualization robs friendship of its affectionate power. Because we then become very choosy about who we give our sexual affection to and we we are um, we we do not we are terrified of being misidentified or being thought of as inviting because it's still a very sexual expression is still a very personal and some might say if especially in an unwanted sense an invasive kind of thing and so uh, if we're going to be more accepting of the sexualized culture, then we can we know we will get ourselves in more trouble the more affection we show. If we were a less sexualized culture, nobody would be trying to barge in uh, sexually or fewer there would be fewer instances of that. So great there is an inverse uh, it's inversely proportional, isn't it? Because, because nobody wants to have sex with everybody. In other words, there's not a person, unless they're, you know, mentally, uh, really problematic, uh, mentally ill. There's not a person who wants to have sex with everybody, and so that person is not going to show affection because in a sexualized culture, what that gives you is permission or perceived permission. To approach me sexually. That's my theory, anyway. Well, I think it has a lot to do with your expectation of how it will be perceived by others. Well, no, that's what I'm talking about. If I show affection, that will be perceived by other people. Oh, I see. Not the other, Not the other party. But other people. Well, like in two single men were like, you know, feminists on each other, and you're like, no, I want to marry a woman, and the woman perceived that's like, okay. Yeah, right, right, right. That's a good point. And, and that, okay, your point taken, yes. Well, it, seems, it just seems like there's some divide here because that's true for men, but women get catcalled all the time and they're not even showing any affection. They're just walking down the street. Yeah, that's objectification though. And it's, it's uh, but, but let me, all these are such, we can't get off in the weeds here, but um, not that you were, uh, Doing, not doing the weed, not getting in the weeds, but um, getting off in the weed. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Speaking of Colorado, uh, no. Um, we okay. We we will. Uh, let, let's move on here. But this whole this whole inverse proportionate kind of thing has got me really curious. Um, yes, Jim. I'm wondering if someone's going to, might sound kind of chauvinistic, but historically, yeah. did women almost need to get married? I mean, you well, no, no. Sociologically, that's absolutely right. Considered slaves or cattle, I mean, to men. 
and they, they couldn't hold position. But right. We're talking about how it's a man's world today. It's nothing what it was. Right, right. There, there, there is much yeah. less social, uh, there's much less sociological and economic pressure and, for women to marry. Nowadays, women are taking more positions than they never before. Right. Before World War II, you know, what was it? Being a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher? Right. That, that was basically it. Or a right. housewife. Right. That, that was, if you weren't a housewife, you didn't have a life. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Good. That's, that's an astute comment and sociologically verifiable. I mean, Mark Regnerus, our friend Mark Regnerus, has been here many times talking about how uh, economically there is much less imperative for women to marry these days. And so uh, that has increased, that has had some sociological implications. Marriage is being, marriage rates are declining. The, the age of first marriage has risen dramatically. 28 for women, I think 29 for men, that's higher than it's ever been historically. And so uh, those, there's some problems with that, but again, that's getting off into the weed. Uh, so, um, but, uh, all right. So what, okay, y'all have come up with such great ideas that this is, it's hard to go on here, but yes, Lucas. One more great idea. What? So in other countries, I'm bringing up other countries because we've been talking about socialism here. The U.S. but like you go to other countries. Guys kisses guys and girls kiss. I mean, that's sometimes how. It's yeah, that's that's because they're foreigners. Um, anyway, the the uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I am talking about the West. I don't know. I mean, yes, I, I know that that the affection is displayed in different ways around the world. Yes, our context. In our context, though, the West, uh, not just in the United States, but the, the Western uh, countries, and to a certain extent, um, countries that have are uh, parts of the world that have been heavily influenced by the West. These these current situations obtain here. So, um, but you're you're exactly right, and friendship is viewed differently too in some of those other contexts. Um, but back to the the statement that I made, what people often look for in marriage is friendship. I believe that's a problem for friendship and a disaster for marriage. I really do, um, because marriage, and and, and let's. Let's get this firmly in mind. Marriage will tend, marriage will tend to things other than friendship. It, it does this by necessity. Marriage tends to, it, it, it takes care of things other than friendship. And we often, that sounds weird because churches especially often say, you got to work on your marriage, you got to communicate, you got to take weekends away, have date night, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I'm just telling you that um, it's true, and I'm not just speaking as a married person. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in general. It is true that marriage will look after things more than it will look after friendship between you and your spouse because there's got to be a division of labor of some type in a marriage because what you're doing 
is you are doing, uh, you are tending to the establishment and maintenance of a home. And I don't mean a physical structure, although that can also be the case, but you are, you are looking after the establishment and maintenance of a home. And while we would all like date night to take place, the fact of the matter is that there are other things that need to be looked after. And yes, you know, sometimes, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to apologize for that. That's just how it is, okay. Um, and friendship, on the other hand, will not lend itself well to the vocation of marriage if you want to if you want friendship to be the centerpiece then the marriage itself is going to suffer because marriage or I'm sorry friendship friendship is by its very nature exclusive and when you are raising children you cannot afford to be exclusive. You have to be radically inclusive. And that's why children are very difficult, depending on your level of radical inclusivity uh, leanings. It, children are secondary when friendship is primary. That's how it works. And when children are secondary, that's a problem. The most vulnerable people on the face of the earth, the most vulnerable entities of any kind on the face of the earth are children. And the, the example that I often think of is a baby fawn. You know, just a frail little, you know, spotted cute thing. Hey, the fawn is walking in a couple of hours. Shaky legs maybe, but the fawn's walking around. A, a baby it's 11 months down the road before it begins to walk. Um, and furthermore, that's just walking. There are a billion other things that need it. You can't leave a baby alone for two minutes. That's just physical danger. But what about emotional bonding and social and intellectual development and all these things? You're forming something into this child and you're also giving some trauma to the child because we all have some, we all have some wounding, all of us. So if you don't think you're vulnerable, you're wrong. And, and it, all of us are. And, the, and the, a child is the most, the most invulnerable. Um, the most, did I say invulnerable? The most vulnerable, I was thinking of the baby from Krypton. Um, the most vulnerable, okay, um, who landed and became Superman. Okay, so, um, but even he was vulnerable in his inner self. Uh, okay, he probably carries some wounds. All right, um, now, what I, I bring all this up to disab to try I, if I'm just going to keep beating this drum. Our view of marriage is is 
not where it needs to be. And, and I mean myself too. I, I, I'm disabusing myself of this notion too. I'm on this journey. Marriage is not the same thing as a friendship. Marriage is a vocation. I think this arises out of Scripture. I think it is, uh, it is a, you know, you, of course you read Song of Songs and you, you think, oh, it's romance. But there are some other thoughts I have about Song of Songs that, that I think, or, or there's there some other things to be talked about there that are beyond the scope of this discussion. But most of what the Bible presents is a, the devotion of a, a husband and wife to one another and the primary purpose of a marriage being the procreative dimension, the, the raising of children. We have turned that around and made that secondary and we've made uh, romanticism primary. There are great problems with that. Um, because anytime children are secondary, again, they are, they are the most vulnerable creatures on earth. If they're secondary, if, they're, if they occupy a second tier, um, that's problematic. Now, that doesn't mean that there, there, there should not be aspects of friendship that enter into marriage. You cannot build a stable home with someone you hate, in other words, or someone you profoundly dislike. So there are elements of friendship that need to be in that marriage. However, they, the, the primary, it is so that you can build a stable home for children. It is not so that you can build a romantic perfection and then maybe children later. It's, it, you do what it takes to um, build a stable home. Now, for the sake of children. Now, uh, you, you ask, what about uh, mar marriages that don't produce children? You know, the couple is unable to have children, whatever. Um, that is, historically in Christian thought, that has been uh, completely viewed in light of what is the overarching generality, which is couples that produce children. If couples don't produce children, that's also that just that's an exception um, and and it can be a holy exception because what can happen is that couple can turn their energy into the um, nurture the care and nurture of others children you know whether adopting or fostering but also just children that they cross paths with and and this is very important in the Christian community because children need a community of elders that gets blighted when children are secondary. Um, now let's leave that just for a second. And what I want to say here is friendship is actually the highest form of love. And I believe the Bible points the way to that because, first of all, when Jesus is teaching and the Sadducees uh, spring this trick question on him about marriage and the resurrection, what, what happens if a woman marries a man, he dies, she marries another man, he dies, and 
she does this seven times. And what Jesus says is, after about the third man, they were all fools to marry her. No, he didn't say that. Uh, what he said was, what he said was, or they, they asked, well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be, Jesus? They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so he said, they said, whose wife will she be? How do you square that circle? And Jesus said, marriage isn't even going to exist. So what are you talking about? Um, marriage will cease to exist. Do you know how profound that is? If you are wanting to get married, and I'm not, I'm not scolding you for that at all. Please do not hear that. But what I am saying is what you are wanting is something that is temporary. Hold that heavily in your mind as you think about marriage. What you are wanting is temporary. Not everlasting. Um, and so marriage will cease to exist. What is left after marriage? Well, um, Jesus, what does Jesus tell his disciples about their life with him? What does he say? You are, I am calling you friends. A few years ago, there was the cheesiest song in the world that was written for the evangelical wing of the church. And it was called, I am a friend of God. Um, and I'm so sorry that if you heard that, I'm so sorry you had to hear that. Well, no, the, that song, that song is, is, is okay. Um, but, but, uh, I just had a flashback to 1983 now. Thank you, Jessica. Um, all right. But, but you, I'm sorry you had to hear, I'm sorry if that song ruined it for you. I am a friend of God. But the, the truth is that Jesus says, this is the eternal life together. Friendship. And I, that used to bug me. Marriage will be no more. In fact, my kids and I have talked about this, so especially my youngest daughter. She said, That's, that depresses me. You and mom are just going to be like friends? And, and my wife said, yes. No, I, I just... I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, she didn't say that. She thought it, though. But anyway, um, but the, 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 the more I understand friendship, the more, that I, the more I understand that there is a depth of friendship that I have yet to know uh, with people. Um, think about this, y'all. Neither You will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Jesus already knew this reality. Of course, He never married here. And He was dependent. And I'm using that word intentionally. We don't often speak of Jesus as being dependent. Jesus was dependent on His friends. 
in John um, 6, I believe, there's a passage that says, after this time, many turned away and followed him no longer. And he turned to his disciples and he said, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Oh, come on, y'all. That's, that's one of the most poignant questions ever asked. Think about the Lord asking that. When our Lord asked that question, He was asking it of His friends. Um, people He... The, the last faces that He wanted to see before He went to the cross were those men. Now, great, and then and then he said, "Greater love, greater love. There is no greater love." Jesus said, "Than what friendship will drive you to do, which is lay down your life." That's what he said. This is the highest love. So yes, Richard, it does place friendship in that context. It is the laboratory in which agape gets formed in you. Friendship, the word the Greeks had for friendship was uh, philios. And agape was this sort of um, universal high regard for everyone and it was completely selfless it is completely selfless but you don't get there except through the laboratory of philias friendship love this is where it becomes uh, embodied in the literal sense because if you can't love your neighbor whom you have seen you can't love God, whom you've not seen. And it's what you've longed for all your life. And I would, I would say to most of us here, who've ever longed to be married, what you're longing for at your deepest core is friendship. Friendship eventually will be the kind of life that satisfies you. Eventually, I mean, in the age to come, it will be that. At your deepest core, it will satisfy you. And the Bible hints that we can begin to experience that now. If we will take that chance. You have been sold a bill of goods by this society. I am so grieved to tell you that marriage is the highest form of love. It is what is necessary for the formation, not only biologically, but character-wise, of children. And in that sense, it is a great good, and it is a, marriage is a, is a means by which hospitality, and I shared this on Sunday, but it is a means by which hospitality takes root, because you have two people creating a home and the byproducts of that are hospitality. That doesn't mean they're secondary, you know, sort of 
aftermarket uh, kinds of products, but hospitality is a, it just, it's sort of like we breathe in and we use the oxygen, but we breathe out carbon dioxide. What needs carbon dioxide? Plants. Plants. Does that mean carbon dioxide is, is sort of like, eh? No, because we need plants to produce the oxygen that we need. So a couple, a married couple, will build this home for children and produce hospitality, which then feeds back into that child's life, especially. So there's this symbiosis. Um, and if you will know yourself well enough to make a clear-headed and confident decision to marry at some point, then you need friendship. If you're going to become clear-headed and confident to think about the future, friendship is what's required for you. There was a promise we're going to go in just a minute, but in 1914, a Russian Orthodox priest by the name of Pavel Florensky, whom you need to read now that he's translated into English, um, wrote a book called The Ground of All Truth. That's, not, that's just the partial title. The Pillar and Ground of Truth or something like that. Um, listen to these tender words that he wrote about friendship. This man wrote about friendship in a way that and what he was doing was he, this was in 1914 after friendship had been neglected in leading thinkers for hundreds of years 500 years approximately but the ancients the ancients knew how important friendship is. It had been neglected. Um, you know, thoughts and, and writing on friendship had been neglected, and, and even in our day. But back in the 20th century, early 20th century, Pavel Florensky wrote this. And he was building on, he was educated by these, you know, Aristotle and Aquinas and, you know, all these folks. And here's what he said about friendship. He starts, he calls it by its, the Greek name for friendship, love, philia. Philia knows, listen to this, philia knows a friend not by his outward pose, not by the dress of heroism, but by his smile, by his quiet talk, by his weaknesses by how he treats people in ordinary human life, by how he eats and sleeps. The true test of a soul's authenticity is through life together in the love of friends. Now, let's, let me just review that. Philia, that is friendship love, the love that, that is present in a friendship. He's saying friends know each other, not by their outward pose, they can see through that. Not by uh, how they try to be really good people. He calls it the dress of heroism. But they know each other 
by their smile and by what they say when nobody else is listening. Their quiet talk, he calls it. They know each other by their weaknesses. Now, when have you heard that kind of language? Ever? Do you, do you hear that in daily life? I mean, it almost makes me say, how dare people, how dare we call uh, people friends on Facebook? I mean, how dare we use that word? I'm not going to start a big campaign, but I just, you know, when I think about that, it's just amazing. They know each other by their weaknesses. Does somebody know you like that? They know each other by how they treat people in ordinary human life. They know each other by how they eat and how they sleep. What? I mean, um, what is friendship? He goes on. What is friendship? Florensky says, friendship is self-contemplation. Self-contemplation through a friend in God. In other words, friendship is seeing, he says, friendship is seeing oneself with the eyes of another, but before a third, namely the third, God. Friendship gives people self-knowledge. Friendship reveals where and how one must work on oneself. Um, I'm going to close with this. And, and I'm influenced by Florensky's writing here. Um, I'm going to read to you a passage from John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, how many times did Jesus ask, well, I just said, told you, how many times did Jesus ask Peter? That he loved him three times, right? In the Greek, Jesus said, do you agape me? The first two times. Peter said, yes. The third time, Jesus said, do you, fili do you filiate me? The first time he used this highest, this, this universal uh, high form of love that is the, the ideal of love. And the third time he used filiate, and I've heard it said many, many times, Jesus was finally coming down to Peter's level because he knew that's all Peter could handle. Florensky says that's not what that's not what Jesus was doing at all. He was saying, if you're going to agape me, then I've got to know something. Are you my friend?
on the foundation of that friendship. A church was built that changed the course of human history. Let's recover that and do that again. Okay. Um, I'm going to pray and then I would ask that as you feel comfortable, y'all pray with one another around tables and we'll call it a night. Okay. Lord, we have to. We have to hear you calling us uh, to friendship with you through friendship with one another. If we don't, we are truly lost. And so we ask you, show us the way home to friendship. And it is with great hope that we ask this tonight. In Christ's name. Pray with one another. Good night, everybody.